<clears throat> okay, I have locked myself in the bathroom of the Marriott because it's six in the morning and my family is sleeping. Kindly ignore my very weird voice. Here we go. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Rosh Chodesh Tammuz Tov to you and to all who celebrate. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> kind of stole my thunder. And Joshua Molina. Hello. You're, you're a big Tammuz guy. Love Tammuz. Yeah. Can't get enough of it. Today on the show, our Jew of the Week returning to the show is Jonathan Ornstein, the executive director of the JCC Krakow in Poland. And our Gentile of the Week is Antonio Pagliarulo, who joins us to talk about his book, The Evil Eye, The History, Mystery, and Magic of the Quiet Curse. It's the most Jewish book title I have ever <laughs> read in my entire life. We're discussing superstitions across cultures and so much more poo-poo-poo. Knocking wood. Etc. 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 We're also bringing you the latest installment of our series Across the USA, created with the support of the Jewish Federations of North America. This week, Liel travels to Deadwood, South Dakota to learn about its surprising Jewish history. But first, what's going on this week? Okay, if you have been following this year podcast, you know that I have made some questionable life decisions that have led me into some dark situations. This I, could be I've, anything, really. I've been, I've been in combat on several occasions. I've been shot. I've been stabbed twice. I've had five of my ribs pulverized. I boxed semi-competitively. This is to say I've been in a lot of very stressful situations. I'm going to go ahead and say all the stressful situations. And yet, the three longest, most stressful hours of my life came this past weekend when I coached my son's Little League team, the Ravens, in the championship game of Westside Little League. We started out the season completely unlike the Mets, actually winning baseball games. Then we continue the season very much like the Mets, inexplicably losing a lot of baseball games we should have won. Again, unlike the Mets, searched through, got ourselves to the championship games. We're standing there. It's a gorgeous day. Kids are nervous as heck. Starting the game, we're building up a massive lead. At some point, the lead's like 12-0. Other team scores two runs. It's 12-2. I'm thinking, this is okay. We could do this. This will be over in about an hour, and we'll all go celebrate. Everyone will be very happy. And then comes the fifth inning. And the Bears, bless their souls, put up a heck of a fight. Start scoring runs. Four runs, then six runs. Oh, no. Then eight runs. And I'm like, oh, me out. Lord. Me because if you were up 12-0 in the championship game of your Little League 10-year-old series, and then you lost it, I'm really sorry. I was standing talking to the other coach, be like, if we lose, they're never coming back from that. I mean, this yeah. is like... Far worse than just getting blown out. Hundreds of thousands of dollars of therapy per kid, per yeah. life. Like, this is it. And I've always wondered about those, like, crazy sports parents who, like, assaulted you read sometime. Like, crazy Florida dad attacks ump in Little League games. Like, who's that maniac father? It's just a game. Which, in fact, it's I you. said on this show... Two weeks ago, talking to Will Leach, it's just a game. We should teach kids to just enjoy baseball. I was like an inch away, <laughs> just jumping into the field and just like getting in the ump space. It was the most unbelievable tense thing So new. Ever. Final score? 49. Huzzah. We are the champions. That's fantastic. Those, That's amazing. Those kids were so incredibly sweet. They had celebrated like they had just won the World Series, the Super Bowl, the Academy Award. 
everything all together. I have never seen such pure, unadulterated joy. It was just a glorious, glorious Father's Day. And just a, a magical moment wow. of pure Americana. Serious question. What is it like to be an ump for Little League? Because that seems very stressful, not for the kids, just about the parents. Like you're dealing with obnoxious parents literally left and so right. So ours is a vet. It's a veteran. Um, not a veterinarian, although that would also, <laughs> would also be useful. sometimes a useful skill because those kids get injured in like the stupidest ways. Like they stand and all of a sudden they fall. Like they spontaneously <laughs> combust. Ten-year-old boys are that. really like puppies. No, but he's a, he's a military veteran. So he has this thing he calls like, strike! He's like a very uh, kind yeah. of, he's an imposing figure. But at the same time, the sweetest person because like he would see a kid getting really nervous. He was like, time! He would walk up and he's like, listen, buddy, here's what I want you to do. And like, just give him a little coaching tip. It's, Really, again, that a space exists in which kids of all walks of life, all races, all backgrounds, all socioeconomic strata could come together and just be focused on, you know. On not falling down on, on, while standing on, on in the field. standing up and hitting a <laughs> tiny ball with a tiny stick and enjoying beautiful. themselves. That's like, beautiful. That doesn't happen today anymore. But It's like literally alchemy. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thing. But something I will say that is happening among among young kids today, and I've heard this I've heard the secondhand, so I can't corroborate. But apparently in New York City, non-Jewish kids are asking their parents for bar mitzvahs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a thing someone told me. They were like, oh, my friend told me that her son came home and was like, mom, I want a bar mitzvah. And my friend was like, what's the problem? She's like, as you know, we are not Jewish. <laughs> and she's like, they want a party. And I just, I want to put this, this out the there. the party? Is it the checks? It's all of it except, I think, the reading a different language in front of a bunch of people. But this this reminded me that this was a subplot of the pilot of Blackish, Black-ish where mm-hmm. his son yeah. is like, I want a bar mitzvah. And he instead gives him this like sort of over the top African celebration that he has no idea about, which is sort of an amazing commentary on all cultures. Right. Because like there's so much about the bar mitzvah that we don't even know about. So I felt so torn when I heard this because I was like, it's cool that people want what we have. I'm trying to be more like, you know, the Schwitz. They want the words. It's nice to have anyone, anyone want like to, us yes. or yes. want to be the, like we, us the, in the any way. The bar is so low sure. for acceptance culturally right now for us. But then I'm like, what do they want? They don't want a meaningful spiritual ceremony to mark their adulthood in their particular culture. But how many young Jewish kids do? No, the, the none. They all I remember people asking party. me what my kids' themes were. I was like, the theme is the bar mitzvah. The theme is <laughs> becoming a Jewish adult. Correct. Not to cast dispersions on anyone who did Star Wars. That's fun too. I don't know. I kind of love it. I think we should like double down and like brand it. Be like, okay, if you want it, this is what it's actually. We could license about. it. In exactly. a way that will actually also be helpful to us, right? Let's say we do license it, right? We file a patent. Okay, what is this thing about, right? So we come and say, first of all, Party, great, checks, DJ, slow dancing. All these things are terrific and they're very exciting. However, becoming an adult, partaking of responsibility and becoming a member of your religious community. So just for giggles, you're going to choose a foreign language that you have never spoken before. (laughs) It could be anyone you want. It doesn't even matter. It could be Klingon as far as we're concerned. You're going to speak a large portion of it in front of people just to mortify you because that's a sign of adulthood. Then what else? You have to study for it with, yes. a, with a random stranger in your faith tradition, which is a lot. Who probably like has bad breath and like, <laughs> wow. Is, yeah. Ooh, no, don't. Wow. But I bet that's not oh, the case dear. now. Temple, no, temple, temple beer. Let's go temple with beer. Breath all the way. <laughs> temple breath out. <L. laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't mean to disparage. Too late. Um, and then write like a speech that like, yes, yes. falls back in that tradition. I don't know. I think that's like kind of a magical thing. And then it's like, do you really want that party, guys? 
<laughs> for forty nine ninety nine, you could have the official unorthodox bar mitzvah yes, exactly. interdenominational. Can we say 56 to make it get higher? Yeah, Beautiful. Okay. With a personal greeting by Joshua Molina. Yes, a cameo. You'll get a cameo video. Yeah, I'm already in that business. Same, same, for sure. Yeah. Shalom. Sure. <laughs> so I have thoughts about bar mitzvahs. I feel like it's the wrong age. Mm. Is it? Oh, it's a, the perfect age. It's the perfect age. Like, I just feel like it's really hard for 13 year olds, Correct. especially today. That's the point. It's the point. It's supposed to be like the ultimate mm-hmm. test. Absolutely. When else would it be? It's the age of complete transition. You're very well aware. Like, I'm observing this age very close now as my daughter is about to become bat mitzvah in a few weeks. I'm observing her and her friends very closely. They're very painfully aware that they're no longer children, yet even more painfully aware that they're not yet adults. And this kind of constant mortification is precisely the point because that's when the gates are open, right? This is when you're actually (laughs) taking things in and making these decisions. This is when you want it. When you're 16 and like a little more kind of shaped and formed, you're you're like, oh, okay. No, now it could actually hit emotionally. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's horrendous, but incredible and like so moving. I may have said this already, but the night before my son's bar mitzvah, he turned to me, this is Avi, my boy, and said, wow, I've been dreading this for seven years. (laughs) (laughs) It was the first he he had mentioned of the near decade long distress, the ceremony. And how did it go? From my point of view, great, but he's not a show pony. I don't think he liked everyone looking at him. As someone who liked performing and liked all that stuff, at 13, were you comfortable on a stage? Was it part of how you saw it? Were you already interested in theater and acting then? I was definitely way into theater already, but I think in credit to my parents and to my teachers, I didn't look at it. I didn't think of it as a performance. Okay. I definitely, I felt the importance of the moment. The and I actually never loved in yeshiva leading davening. So it wasn't my favorite thing to mm-hmm. do. Mainly I remember while I was laning, doing the Torah reading, who's the correcting guy, the gabai? Mm-hmm. People told me later I was giving him dirty looks. <laughs> Stop <laughs> correcting me. I Too got many this. notes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why don't you note me later? Dude, all the girls are looking. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, nobody in the audience no, knows no whether it's exactly. right or wrong. No Work with me No figure here. it out. God's going to forgive me, you know? <laughs> I did see the most remarkable thing this weekend. And I made a note to myself. I was like, don't talk about your kid this week. Don't talk about your Shabbat journeys. No one cares anymore. But I was like, give it away. Everybody cares But I did go to a service, a kid service this weekend. And it was honestly amazing because it was at B'nai Jeshur on the Upper West Side. And kids, it was like, they were like, this is a very special service you came to. Kids are reading from the Torah. Like these under 10-year-olds were just like, they really wanted to do it. And then they learned and they did it. And I was just like, this is amazing. Well, it was uh, Parshas Bluey this week. So (laughs) (laughs) everyone was... uh... Daniel Tigerim. Everyone was out in full force. The book of Daniel. Tiger. <laughs> News of the Jews. Oh, yeah. N-O-T-J News of the Jews. <laughs> Okay, to news of the Jews, I want to start with some shocking news of the Gentiles, actually, which is that on Jeopardy, apparently... No contestant, neither of the three. I don't know what word you use let's, for let's, three. Let's, let's play Jeopardy at home, okay? You, okay. you, you be my Bialik. Okay, okay. Okay, Two, this is for $200. $200. I'm, am I my Bialik? Oh, this is amazing. Matthew 6 Wow, nine. that is a dead on my Bialik. <laughs> you <laughs> nailed I mean, it. I know, it's amazing. <laughs> that is eerie. Okay, so here's what my Bialik said Matthew 6 9 says, quote, Our Father which art in heaven, this be thy name. So that this. Is the mm-hmm. is the is the crux of the Which question? Is every yeshiva boy knows, having recited the Lord's Prayer before Shachris and after Mariv, is "Hallowed be Thy name." Can you phrase that as a question? <laughs> what is hallowed? Better. No contestant knew this, 
and people on Twitter were just like losing their minds about the like the fate of religiosity in America. I will say, having appeared on Celebrity Jeopardy twice. Ding! <laughs> it's Jeopardy. Ding, yeah, because you can start the second time, I mentioned it, <laughs> which will be moments from now. Who did you beat? Um, well, I, I had a, a I like victory, a victory, and a, a horrible defeat. I beat Jeff Probst, the okay. host wow. of Survivor, and you him. the actress CCH Pounder. Okay, thrilling victory, and I was able. I, my big aim was to be so far ahead that I couldn't lose on Final Jeopardy, so that the pressure was off, and so that I could bet eighteen dollars as a shout out oh. to the Jews in the audience, which I did do. <laughs> However, I came back as a returning champion or in a tournament of champions. And I took an Ativan, <laughs> just free plug for Ativan, <laughs> if you want to send me any, to calm my nerves. Destroyed Harry Shearer and Chris Maloney in the practice round. Wow. I thought one Ativan good, two Ativan great. Took another, and <laughs> I could barely hold the uh, I could barely hold the controller, and, and, and it was ignominious defeat. And first of all, Celebrity Jeopardy is so dumbed down that if you get anything wrong, you look like an idiot, even when you win. I had friends who saw me win. I was like, wasn't that great? They were like, you don't know what a hurricane is? <laughs> Shut up. It's what you put on your feet. So I'll just say uh, it's nerve-wracking, and perhaps, perhaps those uh, contestants knew the answer and knew couldn't the answer. quite Okay, I like it. that. A sympathetic yeah. take. I think that's, that's right, but I mean, I think it's funny that the one who knew it on stage was Mayan Biala. Yes. Like the religious Jew Leave on stage. I gotta say, it is kind of shocking because to me, like, I, I don't even count that as religious literacy. Isn't it just like human? How far have we fallen that this is completely... So here's a problem. Not an immediate instinct. I think I knew Hallowed. I definitely didn't know which. Our uh, Father, which I was going to in say. heaven? Yes. I'm getting dirty looks from Quinn over here. <laughs> I thought it was who. I would have said who. Yeah. Which? What does that Maybe mean? Maybe the three contestants were playing under protest. I don't know. That doesn't see, seem See, now you're already like being problematic about it. It's like, but why do they but use isn't this? Isn't it who, who? It's confusing. But this wasn't the only interesting message coming in from the universe this week. Liel, bring no. us our second so, item. Look, sometimes we give you news of the Jews that appear in traditional media sources like newspapers, radio, websites, the internet. Today, we bring you a pashkvil, which is my absolute favorite form of communicating. This is how the Haredi community in Israel often issues alerts and messages they believe the entire community should know. These are posters. It's only text, of course, usually very big block letters and then a lot of very, very small letters. And because they need to be very attention-getting, the language is almost always very dramatic and over the top. I will say, in many, many, many cases, these Peshkvinim warn the community against legitimate dangers and things that people should know about. They're a great way of communicating. Think how charming it is. Like putting up a poster in the neighborhood is how you actually break news. But in some cases, they could get a little, uh, shall we say, ridiculous. And as a friend of the show, Rabbi David Bashevkin, Noted on Twitter, he posted this one thing, and it was just too good to pass on. Because Stephanie Bethink, what is your least favorite Jewish food? So my controversial Jewish food take, least favorite Jewish food, kugel. I've said it on the show. People wrote in very angrily. They're like, you just so haven't you, had you've my never had kugel. Pcha? <laughs> I just don't, I just, I don't get it. I don't like things that are salt, sometimes sweet. Like, I don't want things that can go in two different like, so, seasoning directions. And so, Stephanie. I'm not alone, you're saying. There are some celebrated rabbis in Jerusalem who think exactly the same way. And I want to share this because this is a masterclass in Jewish logic and reasoning. And if you're 
if you're contemplating whether or not to convert or like are listening and you're not Jewish, you're like, should I join this? Like, this is, I think, the epitome, the pinnacle. If you want us in one poster, here we go. So this one says, remove an obstacle. And then it says, since time immemorial, Jews, a holy people, would pleasure themselves on Shabbos. Doesn't mean the same thing in the Haredi <laughs> community as it does here. <laughs> with all kinds of special foods, including, and then in like size 800 font, kugel. But the text continues, you should not do it. And it gives four reasons, which by the way, again, I imagine like a bunch of rabbis coming together like, okay, guys, we need to find four reasons why kugel is bad. Like, let's have a few drinks and go. Reason number one, because anyone want to guess? It's weird and confusing and mushy. <laughs> because it looks like worms. I say mushy and it And therefore, like if you eat it, this is the strandy kind of Jerusalem kugel. If you eat it, people may think, oh, look, Stephanie's gross because she's eating worms. Okay, this is just the, the intro, the warm-up. The Maybe practice. I can the eat worms up. and worms aren't kosher. So it's like building a fence around the kugel. Excellent. Oh, it's not that worms are gross. It's that worms aren't kosher. Building a okay. fence around the kugel is the name of my next album. I love this. <laughs> but and am I reading this correctly? This is specifically kugel Yerushalmi. It's it is Jerusalem kugel. What is Jerusalem kugel? Uh, Google it. Uh, here, let's, let's look at Google the image it. Of, it, of it together. Why isn't there a Jewish search engine called Kugel? Oh my God, that's it is. And that's the show face. It is uniquely, it's like noodly, and the noodles are very like caramelized and lots of like black pepper. And there is a point to it. It does sort of kind of look at a certain way, look, look a little bit wormy. And to my mind, delicious. But that was just the opening salvo. Number two, Ooh, it, it does is, look warm. Say, I, I get it. Yeah. Traditionally served with a pickle. Now, say the rabbis, the pickle is cold. The kugel is hot. The heat from the kugel then technically cooks the pickle. And if you cook a pickle in Shabbos, which again sounds a lot like a double entendre, <laughs> uh, it's forbidden. It's cooking. So we need not. some sort of container that keeps the cold side cold and the Correct. hot side hot. Another, but, another but, fence. But they're, but, they're only, but they're only getting started because the third thing is where we get metaphysical and serious. Uh, traditionally, kugel is served in slices. These slices are triangular. What else has triangular slices? Heyman's uh, hat. <laughs> but I, um, it's pizza. Pizza. Sure. And what is the known, acknowledged place where all righteous young yeshiva students go to basically abandon faith? To be and, corrupted? And be corrupted by the world. <laughs> the pizza place? The pizza really? place. The kosher this pizza This is Pizzagate. This is literally Pizzagate. If you go to a pizza parlor, man, like you're already... On, but but on not the, actually Pizzagate. This is their version of Pizzagate, which has nothing base. to right. do with but then, an underground. But then, <laughs> but then they end with the most amazing big finish. They say, look, and here's the real reason. Guys, it smells so freaking delicious that it simply distracts you from thinking about Torah. And so just don't eat kugel. I'm sorry. Look, I agree this with is the, a I agree work. with the end result. I do have to say, I think we should start using this form of communication where you just put up flyers to right. express all of your views about important things. That's right. Like, we're meeting at 930 tomorrow. It's a fly. Did you do <laughs> or like I believe there was a period uh, in my college days. I think my voice just broke. <clears throat> there's that a, bar mitzvah chat. There was a time during my college days where we uh, I wasn't getting along with our roommates and we this is how we communicated. I'm not the garbage man. <laughs> Put that on the wall. <laughs> then someone else wrote, I know, I like the garbage man. <laughs> that kind of, that's how we would communicate. Do college kids still use like the whiteboard on the door? 
Is that still a thing that has exists? But isn't Probably. it so charming? I mean, what a yeah. great way to go through life. Like you actually have to be in a neighborhood, walk around, look at things and people be like, yeah, you know what sucks? This thing that I totally don't like eating. Yeah. Don't eat it, man. Okay, so we should all just post our right. food hot takes, cold takes mm-hmm. around this office. That would be funny. Actually, everyone right in. Side. La Vera pizza on 95th is very delicious. <laughs> I think people should, we should have people write in with like, what do you want on an 8 by 11 size flyer? We will print it out and put it up in our studio. Just It has to be like a proclamation of some kind from the serious to the absurd. Send them in on orthodox at tabletmag.com. Great idea. Love it. We will post that. But you know what proclamation did not happen is. You're a queen of the segue. Uh, I can't, I can't know, even wait honestly, to hear. And I ha- yeah. Uruguay's president. Scuttle's plan to turn giant Nazi eagle into a peace dove after criticism. That is an amazing headline. Only in the Jewish news would you get a headline like that. Uruguay's president has withdrawn a proposal to transform a swastika-emblazoned 800-pound bronze eagle found on a sunken Nazi ship into an artistic display of peace following criticism that the plan devalued history. So basically, they recovered this thing from a sunken ship in 2006. They were going to put it in a museum, but people were like, that's offensive. That's All these ideas were offensive. But recently, Uruguay's president offered another idea, which is that they melt it down and sure. refashion the Nazi eagle into a dove of peace. Everyone got mad. Sure. Then finally, two days later, after the initial announcement, the president came back with a proclamation that said, if one wants to generate peace, the first thing to generate is unity. And that is not what is happening. <laughs> Couldn't they I, just tilt it to the right? Exactly. Just melt Can't it down a little bit. just become the new thing to do? They can melt it into that like Jesus monkey thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. He says, I still think it's a good idea, but a president has to listen. You guys but are here, looking at this photo? Right? Yeah, because look, the photo is lovely, but the years underwater have done very little to uh, diminish the glory of, of said 800-pound eagle. But one quote in the piece is from a Uruguayan writer named Mercedes Vigil, which I've never heard of, but the name is just too perfect. She tweeted in response to the announcement saying, if the cultural heritage of humanity followed these criteria, jewels like the Roman Circus, Cappadocia, and the Wailing Wall and more, today would be scorched earth, which is absolutely correct. Why? If we just... Because if every time a regime that we found destructive, offensive, and all around terrible, we would just take care to obliterate all of its symbols and remnants, then yeah, we would have no heritage with which to study history. So like the Western Wall would be remade into like a bounce house or something. Well, no, it's winner. <laughs> it's 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 conquerors, as in fact they mm-hmm. have done, would burn everything to the ground. I mean, the Western Wall only exists because people followed very similar logic. Hey, I don't like this temple of this uh, religion that I just vanquished. How about I burn everything to the ground? Don't do that is the answer. We get so upset. Yeah, leaving things Polygon in historical context seems... Yeah. Like a fair right. I was more drawn to the quote, and not really for the quote itself, but uh, attributed to Uruguayan historian and humorist Diego Del Grassi. What is a historian and humorist? How do I you think get to be that? Often they're the same thing. He it's, does. It's he also funny. he's a historian and he also does open mic nights. Yeah. But he said turning a Nazi artifact into a peace dove would be like if Mexico turned its Aztec sacrificial stones into camping tables, <laughs> which is both uh, historically interesting and humorous. That's right. Humorous. I do like this idea that, like, we could turn— I mean, I don't think they'd have to melt it down because this is one of those big, like, eagles with, in its claws, gripping a swastika. Yeah, so that's what, that reef. was my question. Were they going to keep the swastika, just have a peace dove holding it? Yeah, I don't know. I feel or like, does the whole yeah, thing get melted I don't know. Down? I don't know. I feel like I do like this idea that we can, like, play with something. I mean, this was this was gone, right? This just resurfaced. This wasn't like we— You also we, don't have to 
put it up. It's okay. Like you, you found it, it in the bottom of the ocean. It is not incumbent upon you to say, you know where this should live? A city square. <laughs> That's okay. There are other things you could put up. It's not part of your country's heritage, Uruguay. That's true. Don't don't play that game. Just stick it up on eBay. You'll get a buyer exactly. in a day. Exactly. It'll be us because I think it would look great in this studio. <laughs> it would. It would call the eagle Herschel. Our Jew of the Week is Jonathan Ornstein. He's the executive director of JCC Krakow. He was on show last year to talk about the work that they have been doing to help Ukrainian refugees. And since we've been talking about Poland a bit lately in our News of the Jews segments, we thought we'd call him up for some perspective on what Jewish life today is like in Poland. Jonathan Ornstein, welcome back to Unorthodox. What a pleasure to be with you guys. You know, every time we talk, I'm always surprised that you don't have a Polish accent. Remind us where you come from and where you are now. I have very much a Forest Hills accent, which is considered <laughs> to be close to a Polish accent. <laughs> it is, accent, it is the Poland of America. That I've been told. And last time you were on the show, you were telling us about the amazing work the JCC has been doing with Ukrainian refugees. Can you give us a little bit of an update on what's been going on there? Shockingly, I think that was probably about a year ago that we spoke about it and none of us thought it would last more than, you know, a week or two. 16 months into it, we are still fully committed to supporting Ukraine. So our center has become, in addition to our work, rebuilding Jewish life. We've also become a full-scale humanitarian aid organization. At this point, we've directly helped 220,000 Ukrainian refugees. That's still between 800 and 1,000 a day that we're housing feeding and providing full psychosocial support to. And that 98% of that number, over 200,000, are non-Jews. It's amazing. Just to kind of give some scale about where we are as an organization, is that we were 35 full-time employees before the war started. Within two weeks, we went up to 75 full-time employees where we are now. And we've spent so far six times our annual budget on Ukraine. Wow, that's amazing. You know, the reason I wanted to bring you back is that we've, in our News of the Jews segment, we, we've shared some stories about Poland recently. And there was the bubble party on a Jewish cemetery. You know, when we hear these stories that just seem like, oh no, people don't care about you. Like, how do you sort of work against these broad stereotypes that I think a lot of Americans do have? They don't necessarily understand Poland. How do you sort of combat that in your work? And what do you want Americans to know about Poland today? There are two places in the world that every Jew is an expert on. Hmm. Israel and Poland, right? Someone's never been to Israel. They have no plans to go, but they'll tell you exactly where the line should be drawn and the Golan and this and experts on Israel for certain reasons. And everyone's an expert on Poland because of the trauma because of the Holocaust and the fact that this such a deep wound in the Jewish for the Jewish people is within living memory. Poland today is a very safe, positive, good place to be Jewish. What I can tell you, yes, there's anti-Semitism here. There's anti-Semitism, unfortunately, everywhere. As a community leader who's been living here for 22 years, if you ask me the top 10 issues, challenges, problems I have rebuilding Jewish life and running a community here, anti-Semitism, local anti-Semitism doesn't make the top 10. And I don't think that that's something most community leaders around the world would say. The non-Jews that are around us are our partners. And the only reason we're able to have such success in rebuilding Jewish life, in people finding out they're Jewish and then rejoining the Jewish world is because there's a positive environment in Poland that's conducive to Jewish life, despite 
problems. And I will say that anytime there is something happens in Poland, if it becomes a big story, just because it fits our predisposed ideas about Poland. We all think we know Poland. We all think Poland is a terrible place. And that therefore, anytime something happens, we go, aha. But after 20 years here, I don't think there really is the aha. It's one of the places where Jewish life is going in the right direction. And I wish more communities were going in the direction that Poland's going. I'm curious, you said anti-Semitism isn't one of the top 10 challenges facing the Polish Jewish community, which I'm very glad to hear, but begs the question, what are the top challenges? For us, we're a Jewish community center that's serving every aspect of the community from preschool, which is the first Jewish preschool to open the Holocaust, to BBYO and Hillel. All that we're doing is raised, the money is raised overseas. So we're completely dependent on overseas donations, pretty much the United States jewelry to support all our work. So if you ask me the top 10 problems, I would probably say the first seven are raising what we're doing. And number eight would be fundraising. No, but the issues of the government with Holocaust memory are problematic, not as much for us on the ground, just because what we're trying to do is to say to the Jewish world, Poland is a place of a thousand years of Jewish history. Poland is also a place, of course, of unbelievable Jewish tragedy in the last hundred years, but Poland is once again a place of Jewish life. And therefore we want the Jewish world to be able to embrace Poland once again and to reconnect Poland. So it's that's a big challenge for us, for people to not see Poland only through the prism of the Holocaust. You know, we say you come to Poland, it's not Auschwitz period, it's Auschwitz comma. And that's a big difference. What is the size of Poland's Jewish population? Between 15,000 and 100,000 mm. is very... Mm approximate. And the problem is that people are still coming out of the woodwork and finding out that they have Jewish roots. So there are some people that I know they're Jewish and they themselves don't know they're Jewish. So it's very hard to count. Are you guys a resource for that? Yes, absolutely. We have a genealogist. We are a resource for people that, you know, the most of the young people that are in our community didn't grow up traditionally knowing they were Jewish and found out somewhere along the way that they actually are Jewish. You have another big project coming up, right? Will you tell us about the ride? What is it? The ride of the living? Ride for the Living. Absolutely. So first of all, March of the Living also goes from Auschwitz to Birkenau, which is very important. Then we work with them and support her. But to be honest, the Jewish people is very much about Aliyah. And I don't know from Auschwitz to Birkenau if you're making much improvement there. So we decided that we should go from Auschwitz to the JCC to go to a place of tragedy, to go to a place of light and hope and optimism. So this is the ninth year we've been doing a bicycle ride. It's about 60 miles. We have 200 people from all over the world who are coming to participate. We have two Holocaust survivors that do it with us. I'll actually do it on a tandem bike with a 94-year-old Holocaust survivor next week. We have the U.S. ambassador doing it. Greg LeMond has been to do it with us. And then there's also a feature documentary uh, that's coming out that will pre-premiere at the ride called For the Living, which looks at our bicycle ride as a response to genocide. I think everything that we're doing in Krakow, we're trying to say that the most important value in Judaism is not history and is not memory and it's not commemoration. Those things are important. But at the top of the pyramid is life. And what our community is about, life and finding a positive and always looking to say that the Holocaust is something that was not the end of European Jewry and that there are lessons to learn from it. And one of those lessons is that the Jewish response to tragedy has always been and must always been to move forward and to build and to rebuild. So Jonathan Ornstein, how can people find out more about the JCC Krakow? You can go to friendsofjccrakow.org, rideforthaliving.org, holocaustsurvivorday.com, which is a holiday that we uh, created to honor and celebrate Holocaust survivors that was celebrated in 20 cities around the United States, including uh, in Gracie Mansion. 
a few weeks ago or just Google us and we'd love to have people stay connected and we're appreciative of your uh, continued unorthodox interest. <laughs> Thanks so much. We'll, we'll chat with you Thank soon. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Hi, it's Abby Pogrebin, back with another episode of The Minion, a roundtable discussion on tablet about the state of the American Jewish community. No experts, just people. This time, I talked with 10 Israelis who chose to move to America. Here's some of what they had to say. I grew up in a Hasidic community in Israel, in Bnei Brak. So when I left the ultra-Orthodox community, I was put under the box of secular, which definitely doesn't work for me. I think what I found for me in America is that my Jewishness, it's much more private. My whole generation, the people who started the country, our religion was the nation. Jewishness was nationhood. And so still, I get up in the morning, the first thing, I open my eyes, I want to know if my children are okay. And the second, before I think about work or anything, I check the news if Israel is okay. Yeah, for us Israeli, there's no difference between being Israel and being Jewish. It's, it's It blends together, whereas here, you know, you have to, to work or consider or be aware of the fact that you're also Jewish beside being American. And I had this realization when, when I was nine years old, we went to France for a year or two. And only then I realized that, hold on a second, there's a difference between me being Israeli and Jewish because there are some other French people here who are Jewish as well, and but not Israeli. Well, I think that not necessarily American Jews, but American as a whole, they, you know, think Israel still lives in the dark ages. You have camels roaming the streets. And I've made a very conscious decision to go with momentum uh, to Israel with only American ladies, because I wanted to see Israel through their eyes, which was very enlightening because they had very different thoughts than what I knew about Israel. You know, they, they just, cannot understand how forward is Israel with technology. They were like, oh my God, they have all this technology. They have Waze. And nobody even thinks that Waze is Israeli or WhatsApp or so many other things that Israeli actually, you know, came up with. The nationhood and statehood and religion is intertwined in Israel. You're Jewish just by being Jewish. You're a passive Jew. You could even be a passive Jew and you'll be considered Jewish. Here, you have to be much more proactive to work on that side of your identity. And having a family with two little kids, you know, we have to make plans of doing something for Shabbat. We have to be considerate about sending our kids to some form of Jewish schooling beyond what my wife and I can provide to our family. Like, you, you really have to work your identity here, while as in Israel, you know, just by being you, you are Israeli and Jewish. Check out the latest Minion at tabletmag.com slash Minion.
are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, mailbox. All right, to the mailbox. I'll start. This one reads, hey, unorthodox, I want to ask about the Yiddish expression Shanda Far de Goyim or Shanda for the Goyim. It seems to be used to describe two different things in English. One is a Jew who does the work of a non-Jewish elite power structure, similar to an Uncle Tom, and a Jew whose horrible actions reinforce stereotypes about the Jewish people to the world at large, like Bernie Madoff. Which one is the right one? Thanks, Benj. I have to win. I've never heard the first one. I've only heard the one like the Madoff, Shonda for the Goyim, Weinstein, yeah, that's, Shonda for the Goyim. Like, yeah. That's the one that resonates Someone with me. who behaves badly. Although he raises a really interesting question because maybe kind of inherent, like deep down inside in that statement is also the understanding that this kind of stereotypical thing kind of empowers the type of non-Jewish power structure that is used to keep us down. Because the entire assumption that we're money-grubbing heaps is a way that the Gentiles oh, so, traditionally use so against So actually, us. two is one. Yeah. The latter is the former. I also think that the first one kind of, I feel like people were very so upset with the Kushners because of their role in the Trump administration. And so that is sort of the first version of this, which I never really thought. Which, for the record, I think is a profoundly idiotic way of looking at the world. And this is not a political statement. It's a, an ontological statement can be like, I'm upset with these Jews because they represent political party I don't like. But I just mean that that is the first strain of the second one. But I've actually never really heard the first one. So I don't know. No, it's like I'm sure. people say capo. I think yes. that's what they're saying. And then I've not heard Shana Vertigoyim as a synonymous phrase. Right, because capo would mean precisely someone who's working actively against, against. Jewish interests. I mean— you can't say that someone like Bernie Madoff set out to work like for all of his, you know, Michigan's like it's not set Michigan out to work. Is a nice way to do, you know, explicitly <laughs> against against Jews. Yeah, but he wrote, except for Elie Wiesel, we totally fucked. But over. he preyed on the intra ness of Jewish social circuit. This, yes, the but Jewish not, social true. circuit. But not in we the service of the Gentiles. Us. No, right, in not in the service, service of himself. Yeah, in yeah, himself. himself. A Which big money grubbing Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's true. Anything on an unrelated note, but a great opportunity to mention another job of mine. I was on a show called Scandal, created by a woman named Shonda. It's amazing. Shonda Rhimes. It is amazing. Right? What are the odds? It's just such an amazing name. It's pretty good. Shonda for the rhymes. But I think I think Benj is making a good point. I think we need two distinct categories here. And Capo, I feel like, is such a term. Like, I feel like 
it's a term you hear a, yeah, a lot more now than out. you'd expect. Let's take it out of like I hear it a lot directed towards me. Wait, people think you're a capo? I don't think Wait. anyone really thinks that, but people like to say it on Twitter. What do people think a capo is? First well, then why? On Twitter. Because uh, you... a- Anything that's critical of Israel that I have to say or of Netanyahu, oh. uh, you're a capo, you're, you sit on the board of Americans for Peace Now, that's an anti-Israel organization. It's all misused. So you're a capo and... because you're exploiting other Jews, like... Yeah, Kappa is, of course, were the Jews that the Nazis forced to regulate their communities on, on the Nazi power structure's behalf. Yeah, see, to me, that is completely fucked Capo up. Capo is now no. just like someone you don't like on Twitter. Correct. Right? Yes, someone whose political opinions you don't like. Capo for the burden, the burden of proof should be very, very, very high. Yeah, like, did you actually shuttle someone to a gas chamber? Did you actually right, for the collaborate record, I have not. with Nazis? If the answer is yes. Oh, yes, yes. Did you actively collaborate with Nazis? I like that. This next one comes from Scott. Just reaching out from rural southwest United Kingdom to let you know that your reach extends as far as Dorset, England. You're a weekly fixture in my gym listening and draw stares from the other gym bunnies when you make me laugh out loud. With love and thanks, Scott. By the way, I love that we have gym rats Us and they gym have gym listening. bunnies. No, we, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> it's so that, cute. That to me is absolutely wondrous. You too can send us your emails at unorthodoxatavamag.com or leave us a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Our Gentile of the Week is Antonio Pagliarulo. He writes about spirituality, witchcraft, and paganism, and the intersection of folk magic with popular culture and religion. He joins us to talk about his new book, The Evil Eye, The History, Mystery, and Magic of the Quiet Curse. Antonio Pagliarulo, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. It is a great, great pleasure to be here. So can you tell us, as an entry point, what is the evil eye? What is the evil eye? The evil eye is a curse or negative energy that is transmitted through a glance or a look. The old saying, in uh, a single glance is all it takes. Very, very true. I define it in three ways. The first way is when someone gives it to you intentionally and someone says, you know, I really don't understand why do they have the promotion and I don't. They don't deserve it. Why did they get the marriage? Why do they have a happy life? Why do they have the kids? It's intentional that jealousy and resentment, those emotions are intentional and they're literally giving it to you because they don't want you to have that. The second way is unintentional. You can give the evil eye unintentionally by saying, oh my God, the baby's beautiful. The custom is to, in many cultures, to say, oh, God bless afterwards or to spit knocking on wood, that's to ward away the evil eye. And that's an unintentional way of giving the evil eye. You didn't mean to do it, but it's the possibility is still there because you might have some underlying jealousy or resentment that you're not connecting with, but you still could give the evil eye. So you're going to have those little rituals afterwards. The third way is by bragging and by boasting. And that's how you bring it upon yourself. That's when you go out there and you talk about the flashy new house, the car, my job is great. You're posting your vacation pics on Instagram and Facebook, and you're just talking about how awesome everything is, and look at me and here, and you're putting a spotlight on yourself. So I got a text message last night that felt very relevant to this interview. It was a friend, and she texted me saying, is the evil eye Jewish? How do you respond to someone who says, is the evil eye X cultures? Most scholars will tell you that the evil eye goes back at least 5,000 years. It goes back to the ancient Egypt, 
We know that eye symbology and, and symbolism goes back there. They painted eyes on the sides of boats. You know, you have the eye of Horus, you have the eye symbolism on coffins. And some will tell you that it goes as far back as Mesopotamia. We have this symbolism of the eye being a protective symbol way, way back. But no one culture can really claim it. It's kind of amazingly universal in a way. And that's why it has this enduring appeal and stigma and and just staying power, right? Oh, it, it's literally, when you say it's ubiquitous, I mean, I remember years ago being younger and here I grew up, you know, in the Bronx and in the city and in Manhattan and you'd want to go to like, you know, magic shops and you'd go to the city and you'd come here and maybe one or two in the, in the boroughs here and there and you'd see symbols like, the Nazar or the Hamsa or the Monocornuta, the Italian one with the horns. Now you go into Walmart, you go online, you go into Target, you go anywhere. And in the last few years, it has just exploded in, into just everywhere you look. There's, I mean, I saw backs, a kitchen backsplash of a, of a Hamsa and there are pillows, there are pet leashes. So it's just, it's everywhere. And that goes back to it being so ingrained in people. I'm actually wearing a necklace with an eye on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so embarrassing, but it's true. Is it true. working for you? I think it's working. Um, so, Antonio, let's start from the beginning. Tell us about the home you grew up in and the openness and the the practice. You know, this was sort of second nature to you growing up. So I grew up in the Bronx. My parents are from Italy. We lived upstairs. My grandparents, my mother's parents lived downstairs. They only spoke Italian. And we grew up in a home where the evil eye was always, always present. Uh, My grandparents were Catholic and devout Catholics, but my grandmother was very well known in her town and certainly in the neighborhood for diagnosing and removing what's called malocchio, the evil eye. And so if somebody had a headache, somebody had a spate of bad luck, somebody had, you know, the job fell through, you had a flat tire, you dropped four forks, and you had this whole thing happening in the span of a few days, people would call my grandmother. The Italians, the most common way is through olive oil, water, and a prayer, a secret sort of prayer that, you know, that's handed down and it's recited privately and secretly and quietly. And that is how you diagnose the evil eye based upon what forms the oil in the water. We grew up with a lot of what is today folk magic, but my grandparents, it's funny, you know, were not what you would call, you know, a lot of people said to me, oh, your grandparents were witches or no, they would bring my neck if I called them, which is my grandmother would come at me with her shoe. They were devout Roman Catholics, but they practiced folk magic. I think that fact that these things were not at odds, that's something that a lot of Jews understand. These sort of go hand in hand for many people, right? It's not like, oh, you're rejecting traditional religion by thinking about things in this way. It's actually not true at all. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. In fact, it's funny you mentioned before, you know, my husband is Jewish. And I remember the first time I mistakenly put a bag on the bed. It was, you know, he screamed at me. I remember the huh. first time shoes on the bed, scream, oh, you know, get that off the bed. My dad tells the story of his aunt, my great aunt Jean, may she rest in peace. He got a new swanky car, I think for his 18th birthday from my grandpa. And when he went to drive it, he was very excited about it. He opened the door and salt just poured out <laughs> because my aunt Jean had essentially filled the thing with salt, lest the evil eye oh. uh, inhabit the car. Where, where where, where do you stand on the efficacy of salt? Oh, my gosh. Salt, recently, very recently, I'm talking within the last three weeks, we went to an event, my husband and I, and we took out these blazers. You know, we hadn't worn blazers in a while to, you know, to go to be formal for something. And we were walking, and he reached in his pocket, and there was just a handful of salt in there. And there he said, I wore this. When did you wear my blazer? Because I put salt in his blazer. And 
so salt, I, yeah, if, if I was there today, um, I can guarantee I would have been able to pull salt right out of my, my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say my favorite part of your book is the Jewish magic portion, um, where you go into a bit more depth on the various sort of amulets, spells, things like that, that come from the Jewish tradition. So you educate our listeners about the, the breath. Like, I was kind of amazed that you know this much about Judaism, to be honest. Funny story about that. When I did meet my husband, he said, how do you know so much about Judaism? We were talking the first time we met, and he said, you know, you're this Italian Catholic kid from the Bronx. How did you know about Judaism? At least 10 years before I met my husband, my sister also married a Jewish man. And my brother-in-law would call me up on Friday nights. He would say, oh, you know, will you come to services with me tonight? You know, my sister either didn't want to go or was busy or had stuff to do. And I said, sure, I'd love to come. And so that's how I started going to shul long before I met my husband. I would go just because I wanted the experience and I loved it, loved it. So when I was sitting there with my husband the first time and he was like, how do you know this stuff about you? It's because (laughs) I started going to shul long before I married a Jewish man. So when I knew I was doing a book about the evil eye, I wanted to give it as broad a picture in terms of the magic that I could. And I went into Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Zoroastrianism, all the the faiths that have the evil eye. And as I said before, it's so ubiquitous. With regard to the Jewish magic, I spoke with many, many people, and this goes across the board for the book, people of different faiths, different cultures. Many of them shared their experiences. Many of them shared their practices. When I talk about the Jewish magic in particular, I do the Ben Porat Yosef spell. I think it's important to know how this is all connected in a way, because you could see it as Jewish magic. There are certain things that are Christian or Catholic, but it's important to see that there's a vein sort of that goes through it. You know, the Psalm spells as well. They're very, if you look back, these aren't necessarily new things at all. These are practices that go back a long time using the Psalms and folding them up, using them in terms for health, for prosperity, but they all have the evil eye and the sense of protection at their core. You talk about this Ben Parat Yosef spell. If someone sees that and is like, what do you mean a spell? We're like, we don't do that stuff. I mean, how do you sort of, why is it important? We pray, we don't do spells. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Is there a distinction? Yeah, and and why was it important to you to frame it in the way you did? And what do you say to someone who is like, don't say that word? (laughs) So a lot of people in the the magical community, um, a lot of people will tell you that there is no difference between a spell or a prayer because what you're doing you know, it's where your intention that counts. You're sitting down, you're connecting with something with a sense of divinity, you're connecting with the spiritual side of yourself and something else, and you're sending your intention out there, you're praying. Then you have the other faction who will say, no, a spell and a prayer are not the same thing. When you start praying, you're basically taking a step back and kind of bowing down and then asking a higher power for help, as opposed to when you're doing a spell, you're stepping into it and you are co-creating this magic together and you're sort of, you know, casting the circle together or you're doing the protection together. And I think we all, whether or not we want to admit it, you know, your prayer is a spell. You know, you blow out your candles on your birthday. If you didn't know it, that's a spell creating that wish. You're you're putting energy out in a specific direction. Putting energy out into a specific direction. And so, yeah, if you want to be specific from the magic perspective, that's a spell. You're spitting when someone gives you a compliment or you're saying, you know. I was going to ask you about that one. That seems very Jewish. Yeah. Poo-poo or tfu-tfu. Yeah. Poo-poo-poo. Very big. The power of saliva. Huge. Um, (laughs) You know, that's that's a spell. And I do that all the time. Yeah. I started reading the book, which is wonderful and I'm enjoying as a skeptic. And then I thought very quickly, I'm like, oh no, I'm bought into so much of this already that I I just haven't really examined it because I'm I'm a big poo-pooer. 
In many ways, you're a big poo player. No, it's true. I mean, even reading about some of the stuff in your book, I'm like, don't even write those words. Like, don't even tell me about the bad things that could happen because I think that we are either as a society, I mean, I think particularly Jews, I think particularly Italians, you know, like I think there is this sense of like, don't tempt fate and this openness to the fact that like there are forces outside our control and whether or not we intellectually understand them or or how we classify them. I think we're all sort of very permeable to them and open to them. Oh, yeah. It goes back to also when, and I I mentioned this, when somebody says to you, oh, how are you? How are you doing? (laughs) You know, the response is, oh, you know, all right, thank God. You know, not not bad, not bad, thanks. It's very rarely, I'm doing great. I'm awesome. It's great. Everything's perfect and wonderful. Thank you. We certainly don't do that in Italian culture. We were taught to say, Thank God, everything, uh, you know, it's going, it's all right. Same Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem, right. There you have it. And I or like that, that. Y- Yiddishism of like, not dead, like you're like, it's so far in the other direction. Like you get some like really wry response in the answer to like, how are you? We love wry. And I, yeah. <laughs> with wry, and I interviewed a man who actually said, when I, in his culture, um, I believe he was Muslim. And he said, well, uh, someone will say, how are you doing? And I'll say, or, or they gave him a compliment and said, oh, how are you doing? You look really great. You're, you know, you're fit, you're trim. And he immediately said something to the effect of, yeah, thanks. But, you know, this morning I fell and almost broke my leg because I tripped on something and it was a big fiasco. Thank God I'm okay. And he actually said I had not tripped and fallen, but I felt <laughs> the need to say that <laughs> to make it sound like I had a less than perfect sort of physique or body wow. or something because someone gave him a compliment. And he said that was just ingrained in his culture. And it was sort of this um, this plan that he always had in place when someone gave a compliment and said, oh my God, you look amazing or you look great. And he'd say, thanks, but you know, I it's weird you're saying that because yesterday my back was killing me and my, you know, everything. Now you just gave me a horrible thought, which is I'm wondering whether social media is a giant ask for the evil eye as we yeah. put out these uh, illusions of how great and how wonderful every day of our lives is. Wow, I mentioned right. it very quickly in the book. Be careful what you're posting on social media or ask yourself how much do you need to post about that, you Josh. know. Awesome life, you're uh, I, I'll be you're right back. It's true. <laughs> like, people are like, my new I have house, to deactivate a couple this of things. is my amazing kid. You were like, ah, like you're, yeah, there is sort of this visceral sense of like, what are you doing? Well, right no, there, the new house. Yeah, but do you need, you can oh, yeah, post a picture of the new house. That's nice. But do you need to post a picture of every room? Do you need yeah, to show how shiny everything is and how, you know, it's, you know, think about that before you post. Well, it. what about the fact that like, right when we moved in, my, mother-in-law gave me like the thing to put in the top corner with the red string and the bread like this and then under the crib when the baby came she was like you have to tie this string and I was like okay I'll I'll take all of the protection I can get so Antonio you told us a little bit about your home growing up now you're married to a nice Jewish guy what does your house look like what's your practice like what does your life look like now our practices are believe it or not very separate and yet we just have tremendous respect for each other's practices and we and it just works you know we have um two hamsas as soon as you walk in you'll find it um i do have bunches of herbs that i i talk about that i use sometimes i string those based upon the time of year or the time of month there's always olive oil and a bowl of water at the ready because i too get called upon quite a bit to uh ask if do i have the evil eye me does my kids is my husband my wife my <laughs> other loved one, 
you know, my husband gets up and does minion and I wake up in the morning and I'm pouring coffee to the sound of him praying. And, and that's an awesome thing to hear. And, and I love it. And then he looks over across and probably sees me at my altar where I have lots of different things going on because as someone who practices folk magic, I take from a lot of different traditions. It's definitely a blending of both faiths. You know, not blending in the sense that we partake, like he doesn't partake actually of anything in terms of the folk magic that I do. But I mean, a blending in the sense that we respect each other's faith and it's here under one roof. Everything exists in a, in a very positive way and, and we make it work. You know, because I think you might be, for a lot of our listeners, sort of the first person they've encountered who says, you know, I practice folk magic. What does it look like to practice folk magic to you? What is that community of people like? What are some ways we can sort of make this more visible to people for whom this is not something they they regularly encounter? So folk magic, if I say I practice particularly Italian folk magic, because I grew up with that and I explained a lot of the evil eye stuff, there are a lot of different aspects to it. The folk magic is all about what people had at the ready. They had herbs, water and salt, fruit, vegetables. They had the dirt. They had the tree. They had what was immediately around them. And they had the accoutrements in their home. That was where the folk magic happened, you know? You can be practicing folk magic actually without saying any types of prayers. You know, some people practice folk magic by making a protection water and boiling bay leaves and rosemary together and using that water as something to protect your home, to bless your home, to bless yourself, to bless your car, to bless whatever it is. So folk magic, it's blending a lot of different types of things. For me in particular, my roots in Italian folk magic, actually. So there's a lot of Catholicism in my folk magic, obviously. But it's not the kind of practice that, um, let's say, a Catholic priest would come in and say, oh, good, you're doing that. That's good. I agree with that. No, mm-hmm. that's not it. In fact, the remove, the diagnosis and removal of the evil eye, this is stuff that most Catholic priests or Eastern Orthodox priests would say, well, no, that's not, you know, you can't be doing that because that's not what we should believe. That's superstition. And yet... I can tell you absolutely that the local parish priest in the Bronx sprang up, called upon my grandmother very frequently to remove the evil eye. Doing folk magic for me means that I take from the tradition I was raised with, but sometimes the saints operate and work outside of the bounds of sort of what the catechism says. You know, you can pray, for instance, to St. Anthony to find lost objects, right? But you also make offerings. You can offer him a white lily. You can offer him salt. You can offer him, sometimes we offer different types of, I, I, I like offering licora strega, which is the Italian liqueur, or you can do different types of liquor. You make offerings. In certain types of Italian folk magic, there's a tradition, and here's where people go, they're like, what, what are you talking about? Most people don't do this, but there's also this thing that sometimes is called um, saint punishing almost, and I hate using that word, but people will pray, they'll practice folk magic, and they'll pray to a saint for something in particular, and if the saint sort of doesn't deliver or come through, they'll either turn the saint statue upside down Hmm. on his or her head, or they'll put the saint statue in a drawer, sort of to say, "Um, you've disappointed me, and I'm turning my back on you, and you're staying in that drawer in the dark until you get me what what I've been praying for. For me, it's working with not only the aspects of Catholicism that I was raised with, but it's also working with the other metaphysical traditions that I have been educated and trained in. So yes, there are a lot of people who say, oh, you know, are you comfortable with the word witch or witchcraft? And yes, of course, that's what magical practitioners are mostly are very comfortable with. We understand that we walk between two worlds. Folk magic is always about what are you doing to not only empower yourself or to change a situation or to 
help heal or correct the situation through magic or through prayer, but also it's the community, it's your people, it's people who just need you in general. I oftentimes when the phone rings and people say to me, oh, do you have your oil and water out for the evil eye? This is not for me. It's doing it for other people. I can't tell you how many manners people have said to me, my kids can't get married. They have the evil eye on me, on them. What's going on? So the practice of folk magic, it's something very, very wide and varied, and yet it's also very, very intimate. That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. So do you have like one tip that we can all take away? Like what's one thing we can do to protect ourselves, like an easy thing for our listeners? An easy thing, I would say, number one, is to make yourself aware of what the evil eye is. Okay, the first step in really protecting yourself is becoming aware of the evil eye. The book that I wrote is a friendly reminder about an unfriendly topic. And that's the topic of jealousy and envy. And a lot of people don't want to talk about that. They don't want to admit that they've been jealous or that they have been, or someone else, you know, is jealous of them or envious or resentful. Becoming aware of it is the first step and recognizing it is the first step. And what goes along with the awareness, I would say the simplest thing is to literally most people have salt in the house, okay? You want to take some salt, take your thumb, dab your thumb in the salt. And somewhere you can dab it on your clothing, you can dab it in the middle of your forehead, you can put it on your keys if you want to. That is a simple, simple ritual because most people have salt and will use it. Um, also, if you don't want to use salt, I go into the book about the power of saliva and, and spit to transmit, as I say. It's an old practice. You know, mother, you know, women would lick their thumbs and run it right over their child's forehead in the middle of air or over the heart here. And that was very protective of it because what's stronger, you know, than a mother's love like that. So those are simple practices, but you don't have to be a mother to do that. You can lick your thumb and do that to yourself as well. And that is known to ward off the evil eye. So these are simple practices, but highly, highly effective. Amazing. Antonio Pagliarulo, thank you for being a guest on Unorthodox. The book is The Evil Eye, The History, Mystery, and Magic of the Quiet Curse. Poo-poo, it should be a great success. Thank you. Thank you. It has been my great pleasure to be here. This episode's Across the USA segment was produced with support from the Jewish Federations of North America. The Jewish Federations of North America are the backbone of the organized Jewish community in the U.S. and Canada, representing over 350 Jewish communities. They raise and distribute more than $1 billion annually, including through planned giving and endowment programs to build flourishing Jewish communities domestically in Israel and around the world. For more information, visit jewishfederations.org. J. Crew, this week we're bringing you another installment of our series Across the USA, created with the support of the Jewish Federations of North America. Every month we travel to a different Jewish community in America, and this month Liel traveled to Deadwood, South Dakota. Wilmington, Delaware, gonna find a deli there Looking for a dreidel in the cradle of the heartland Lots to see in Lakewood, Jersey But there's a man of shepherds down in Louisville, Kentucky North, South Carolina Looking for lots in a country diner I can say we're on our way All across the USA
When we launched this series across the USA, the idea was simple. Go and visit communities all over America to see what Jewish life looks like outside of New York or Los Angeles or Chicago or anywhere else you'd expect to find Jews. So we went to Seattle and Louisville and New Orleans. But in some places, the Jewish story is told best through historical records and artifacts from long ago. We wanted to take a look at the legacy one group of prospecting Jews left in the most unexpected of places. Where? Why? Here. Well, I'm in pain, but no, I'm obviously not dead. But obviously you didn't die when the dog slapped you. No. So including last night, that's three damage incidents that didn't kill you. Pain or damage don't end the world or despair or beatings. That, as you might have figured out just by counting those four-letter words, is a scene from the HBO Max show Deadwood, one of the best things ever to air on TV. You can still stream it if you missed it. It's a lightly fictionalized version of a town that looms large in the popular American imagination. Deadwood, South Dakota. The town's real history reads like something straight out of Hollywood. One day in 1874, Colonel George Armstrong Custer, two years before his death at Little Bighorn, leads an expedition to the Black Hills of South Dakota and announces the discovery of gold. So naturally, settlers flock to the region, hoping to get rich quick. They don't care much that the area is sacred to the Lakota people, who call it Owayasuta, or to approve things. The newcomers noticed a bunch of dead trees in the gulch and gave their town its new name, Deadwood. And truth be told, the name fit the town's new vibe like a glove. Eleanor Alphonsine Dumont, better known as Madame Mustache, soon sauntered into town and set up a successful brothel. Dora Dufran soon did the same, as did the impeccably named Dirty M. And before too long, Deadwood had a thriving prostitution scene serving a population that soon mushroomed to 5,000 and then 12,000 and then more. The law didn't much care about such vice, or for that matter about anything else really, murder included, which is why Deadwood soon became home to such legendary Wild West figures like Wild Bill Hickok and Calamity Jane. But Deadwood needed supplies, and Deadwood presented opportunities, and Deadwood didn't much care about pedigree, which is why, pretty soon, Deadwood welcomed the Jews. The Jewish population was just one of many minorities that came out to the Black Hills in this area. Uh, we had Chinese, English from uh, Cornwall, England, Scandinavians. Um, they all kind of came out here and this area became basically a large melting pot with the idea first to make money, but then second of all, to actually settle and raise their families out here as well. And so that Jewish population that you were talking about, there were quite a few people that set up along Main Street that were merchants. We'll meet these merchants soon, I promise. But first, we have to meet the man speaking. He's Mike Rungi. He's not Jewish, but he has one of the most interesting jobs in the world. He is the city archivist of Deadwood. So, sure, the city is very different now than it was in its heyday. It's more Holiday Inn than Doc Holiday, and Main Street is lined up with casinos and t-shirt shops and other tourist attractions. 
But down at the basement of City Hall, Rungi keeps Deadwood's past alive, including its storied Jewish past. And recently, he made a discovery like no other, digging about four feet under Main Street a few years back and finding But we also have in here the scraps of newspaper that we found in 2019 that were from the Deadwood Four Points Archaeology. What's really kind of neat about this is, is these items are carbonized paper uh, it was involved in a fire. We're still trying to figure out the dates. But as I pull this back and you start looking at these, one of the things you're going to notice is, is that if you look close enough, the ink from the newsprint is actually on here. The reason this is so important, especially for the Jewish population, is this is the first artifacts or the first artifacts we found in an archaeological context of the Jewish population that once lived here in Deadwood. In a small box lay 45 small fragments each no larger than a quarter, blackened by fire. But when I looked closely, I could make out Hebrew letters. One fragment clearly read, L'Shanah Ba'ah, as in L'Shanah Ba'ah B'Yerushalayim, the concluding sentence of the Passover Haggadah. So could it be that I was looking at fragments from a Haggadah that the Jews of Deadwood, sometime in 1876 or 1877 or 1878, read as they ate their matzah and drank their four cups down the block from Wild Bill Hickok? I was getting excited. I am not going to lie. And so was Rungi. This, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about this because paper in an archaeological context doesn't exist. The fact that this stuff was carbonized and we have fragments of this. I mean, this is directly tied to the Jewish population that we can do that. That is just unbelievable. It's unheard of. It doesn't happen on a daily basis. So it's, it's been a really fun project. So now I was giddy and I wanted to meet these badass Jews, these men and women who left behind comfortable lives out East and came here to this gorgeous strip of God's land to find their luck and build a new community. So I enticed Rungi to hop in my car and take a ride up to the local okay. cemetery. All right, so first and foremost, welcome to Mount Moriah Cemetery. Um, they, this was established in 1878 by Lawrence County. There are approximately 3,600 people buried in here. One of the things that's kind of interesting and where we're standing at right now is the gateway going into the cemetery. Uh, this was created in 2003 in the likeness of the original 1890 wrought iron cemetery gateway that was there. When you look at it, we have three symbols that are on the gateway, three circles that are interlinking, which stands for the Independent Order of Oddfellows. It was a fraternal group that was here in Deadwood that established in 1877. In the center is uh, the square and compass, which is for the Deadwood Masons. And finally, on the far right, if you notice, is the Star of David. And the Star of David is for the Jewish population that was out here that established Mount Zion, and that's where we're going to be headed to as well. Mount Zion is the Jewish section of Mount Moriah Cemetery. The first thing you realize when walking through the wrought iron gates of Mount Moriah with that giant Star of David is that this isn't an ordinary cemetery. For one thing, it's impossibly gorgeous with dramatic views of the Black Hills covered by pine trees and black-eyed Susans, a yellow wildflower that adds a touch of beauty to this already stunning landscape. For another, it's a tourist attraction drawing upwards of 100,000 visitors every year. But strangest of all, maybe, are the names of the small streets that divide the cemetery into sections. Jacob, Boaz, David, Jerusalem. It feels like a deeply Jewish place. But before you can get up the hill to Mount Zion, 
the section where all the prominent Jews who helped build this town are buried, you have to visit some other folks first. So as we walk up to the celebrity graves, you know, we go past a bunch of names and different individuals. James Layton Gilmore uh, murdered a gentleman along the Fort Pier to Deadwood Trail and was uh, convicted and executed here in Deadwood on December 15th, 1882. And then if you take a, oh, about 10, 12 steps further, uh, you run into the grave of Dora Dufran. She was a madam that operated four bordellos in Lead Deadwood, uh, Belfouche, and down in Rapid City as well. Um, she also, believe it or not, hired Martha Canary to clean one of the houses down there as well. Martha Canary, for those of you who aren't Wild West obsessives like yours truly, is better known as Calamity Jane, the famous sharpshooter and legendary Wild West figure. Her last wish was to be buried by her good pal Wild Bill, who was shot in the back of the head at a poker game in August of 1876. And here they both are, in graves right near each other. These two larger-than-life figures, still large in death. But if you would like to meet the Jews of Deadwood, you have to continue and, and climb up the hill. <laughs> Jews got the top of the hill, huh? They got the top of the hill, yep. And I think it was in 1890 um, is when, when the Jewish community came together and purchased this area up in Section 4 to create it for uh, Mount Zion. The interesting thing, too, is you're going to notice, and I think this is a Jewish tradition about putting rocks on headstones. Uh, you'll see that throughout the cemetery, but it's kind of neat that, you know, that's carried over, not just here, but throughout the entire cemetery as well. That indeed is the case. Little rocks lay on almost every tombstone. But when we finally reach the top of the hill, we notice something else that's different. All of a sudden, all of the tombstones are in Hebrew. And every tombstone tells a story about an amazing Jewish individual or family who helped build this small outlaw town into an oversized entry in the collective American imagination. Uh, the Coleman family was really significant. They were early uh, Jewish merchants. Their daughter, Blanche Coleman, went on to become the first uh, South Dakota congressional delegate. For yeah, and She's buried up here, so we'll see that as well. Uh, the so the road, first South Dakota congressional delegate was a Jewish woman. Yes. That's amazing. Yes. The Coleman's didn't just produce South Dakota's first congressional delegate, who by some accounts was also South Dakota's first Jewish baby. Blanche's father, Judge Nathan Cohen, was the town's lay rabbi. He was beloved by his congregation and by his non-Jewish neighbors alike. The local newspaper, paying him the ultimate compliment, endorsed him by writing, He is no slouch. He is a Western man. The Colemans also built the town's first synagogue in the basement of their spacious home. Spacious, I say, but not quite as swanky as the home of their neighbor in life as well as in death, Harris Franklin. Harris Franklin was born Finkelstein in Russia and arrived in Deadwood in 1876 penniless. He went into wholesale liquor sales, which, as you also heard in our Louisville episode, was one way Jews made their living as they moved out west. And business was booming. So pretty soon, the newly minted Mr. Franklin expanded into banking as well, and then into the hotel business. The home he and his wife built for themselves, a beautiful, dark red brick Queen Anne-style mansion, is still around, not too far from the cemetery. 
It was so luxurious that when it was completed in 1893, it got its own write-up in the local newspaper, with a reporter writing breathlessly that the resident equals, and I quote, in point of beauty, anything of its kind west of Omaha. The home was centrally heated, had hot and cold running water, a telephone, and electric bells allowing its owners to summon their servants whenever they needed anything. None of these things were commonplace in Deadwood, or for that matter, in many other corners of America at the time. The Franklin Hotel was equally fancy. Half of its 80 rooms had private baths, a major luxury at the time. And it boasted a lobby fountain, a cigar store, a barber shop, two private parlors for the ladies, a masseuse, and an elevator. The hotel, too, still stands, reminding the millions of tourists who flock to Deadwood every year looking for that old-timey Wild West vibe that this here town was built by Jews. And while Franklin and others got creative with the monuments they erected while alive, other members of the community left their marks with beautiful and beautifully Jewish headstones. You're going to notice a few more interesting monuments that are up here. Uh, Jacobs, Blumenthal, Margolin. Um, and then we have the Cranston plot. Uh, this one was kind of interesting. Uh, the monument itself is kind of like, uh, it looks like the Mosaic Dialogue or Ten Commandments, the way the monument's shaped. Um, this is the first one that we have of seven that had Hebrew text on it. And so what's interesting is, is that this Isaac Cranston, we did a little bit of research on him and come to find out that he was in the Crow insurrection uh, in Montana. And he was actually a uh, Indian Wars veteran and then eventually uh, was mustered out in Sturgis over at Fort Meade, came up and he was a tailor that operated up in Leeds, South Dakota. Walking around these hills, seeing these graves, and reading the Hebrew inscriptions is nothing short of amazing. The Hebrew reads, Ponitman, here is buried. Rabbi Tzchak Yosef Baridi, dear Cranston. Niftar passed away. May his soul be bundled among the souls of the living. Cool. <laughs> That's so neat. You don't need to know any Hebrew to appreciate what you're looking at. Jewish history is everywhere in Deadwood. Heck, even the longtime mayor back then, Solomon Starr, better known as Sol, was Jewish. A Bavarian-born immigrant, he came here in 1876 and opened up an auction and hardware business on the corner of Wall and Main Streets. He and his business partner, the famous and Gentile Seth Bullock, who would eventually become the town's fearsome sheriff, branched out as well, building another one of the town's famous and still standing hotels, the Bullock. If these names sound familiar to you, Starr and Bullock are two of the main characters in HBO's Deadwood. Here they are, engaged in negotiations, two absolute legends. Mr. Swearingen? Yeah, that's right. Saul Starr? Seth Bullock. Rent on lot four. Lot four? The hardware boys, huh? Well, I heard you're not a man. I want to mistake in my intentions. Who says that? I'd like to ask him what they mean. A fella drew on Seth this morning. Never heard him. No one mistook his intentions. Let's leave it all alone. I am stupidest when I try to be funny. The Jewish stories in Deadwood go on and on and on. You could see the legacy of the Jews of Deadwood everywhere you go. There's Felix Poznanski, who ran a dry goods store in Main Street, but was also the region's only moil, traveling across the Black Hills to perform his mitzvah. 
or Jacob Goldberg, who arrived in 1876 alongside Sol Stern, made his fortune as a merchant, and gave back to the community by building the town its library. Or David Holtzman, who set up shop on Main Street, met Rebecca Rubens, and on April 10, 1879, gave the town its first Jewish wedding. The interesting ceremony, reported the local newspaper, took place at the residence of the bride's parents in Ingleside, in the presence of at least 60 ladies and gentlemen of our best Hebrew society and of all other nationalities. Today, alas, there are less than 500 Jews living in South Dakota, making the state the nation's smallest Jewish community. There's a Chabad rabbi in Sioux Falls, and a smattering of Jewish events in Rapid City, which also houses the Torah the Jews of Deadwood used to read from when they prayed, first at Nathan Coleman's basement and later at the local Masonic temple, their makeshift shul. But the Jews of Deadwood past are everywhere you look, telling us a very different story than the one we thought we knew about Jews in America. Here, there are tough and bold and daring men and women, not afraid to brave the elements and throw down with some of the most hardened scoundrels in American history. Here, there's very little of the bigotry that kept Jews back east out of country clubs, elected offices, and other corners of polite society for too long. Here, there was Jewish pride and ingenuity and great faith and the endless promise of this great nation of ours, the United States of America. But hang on a second. As I visited Deadwood, a thought kept gnawing at the back of my mind. Sure, I loved and admired these fierce Jewish cowboys. But I was born in Israel, the indigenous homeland of the Jewish people. And as a Zionist, I celebrate the miracle of returning home to our ancestral lands. And it made me think about America's indigenous people the Sioux and the Dakota and the Lakota and the Oglala and all the other nations that called these parts home long before the new arrivals came along to find their fame and fortune. So I felt like there was just one more thing I had to do before I left South Dakota. I drove down to the Pine Ridge Reservation, about an hour away, to go pay my respects to one of America's most sacred spots. There is no official landmark here, no plaque, no visitor center, just a weathered wooden handwritten sign that tells you the story of what happened here at Wounded Knee. On December 28, 1890, the 7th Cavalry, commanded by Colonel James W. Forsyth, arrived here with the intention of disarming the Native Americans. Chief Bigfoot cooperated with the armed men, giving up many weapons as a peace offering. But Forsyth wasn't satisfied. He wanted all of the weapons, and he wanted them now. This caused the Native Americans great strife. And on the following day, December 29, a deaf man named Black Coyote was scared and refused to disarm. A struggle ensued, and his gun accidentally went off. This was all the sign the 7th Cavalry needed. They opened fire on the now defenseless Native Americans, killing, by most estimates, anywhere between 150 and 300 men, women, and children. Twenty of the soldiers who led the massacre were awarded the Medal of Honor, the highest commendation the United States Army has to give.
Congress has since passed a resolution expressing deep regret for what happened at Wounded Knee in 1990. I felt that in telling a story of Jews and of how the West was won, I owed the Native Americans a little bit more. I owed them, at the very least, a prayer. I didn't record my time saying the Shema by the gravesites of the dead at Wounded Knee. To do so would have been disrespectful. Nor did I record my conversation with the young men who stood right outside the memorial telling us about their reservation, Pine Ridge, one of the poorest places in America, and about how the water pipe had just burst some time ago, and now there was no running water in their homes. But I drove back east that day, feeling as if I've told my children, who joined me on this journey, a more complete story of what America is all about. A story about American ideals that are also deeply Jewish ideals. A story of tragedy and opportunity, of violence and transcendence, and of people understanding, as the Jews following Moses in the desert once understood, that there was nothing inherently promised about our promised lands. What makes nations great is the work people put in to make them better, not only more prosperous, but also more just. A very Jewish story, everywhere alive and well, in South Dakota. You can catch up on the rest of our travels across the USA at tabletmag.com slash USA. This is the part of the show where we wish mazel tubs to people. We wish them well. We say goodbye. We do whatever it is. Shout outs. There could be only one mazel this week to the Ravens, champions of the Westside Little League. What an incredible bunch of boys. Long may they run. And this is a collective mazel that came in from one of our listeners. She says, would you please give a mazel tov to my daughter, Jocelyn? She just graduated from Jewish Theological Seminary with a master's degree in modern Jewish studies. This was a meaningful graduation on many levels, not the least of which was that the pandemic denied her a live graduation when she completed her undergraduate studies. FYI, the graduation ceremony was magical, highlighted by klezmer musicians leading the graduates into the cemetery. Oh. <laughs> wow. That stays. That stays. No. That stays in no. one no. billion no. freaking percent. Oh, no. Wow. No. Oh, no. Too dark. Okay, okay. Highlighted Conservative by. Conservative Judaism. <laughs> You're welcome. Highlighted by Klezmer musicians leading the graduates into the ceremony. My daughter and I have been loving your podcast for years and always listen together. Thank you for so much food for thought, so many additions to our cookbook and reading collections, and so much interesting conversation between the two of us. Wishing you continued success. Margie Abrams from Stanford, Connecticut. P.S. Bravo at such a smooth transition in bringing on Joshua Molina as a new co-host. Oh, bless so a, you. a double Thank you. To, I, I got it. Yeah, I got it. To uh, Jocelyn on graduating and to you, Josh, on joining our show. Mazel I also wanted to say thank you to everyone who came out for our special night on Broadway at Leopold Shot last week. People came from as far as Indiana, Atlanta, D.C., Delaware, Boston. It was so amazing to meet everyone and to get to see our own Joshua Molina in action on stage. So thank you to everyone who was with us for a very, very, very special night. They also got exclusive tablet Broadway swag, um, which will be very, very valuable. You're going to have to look for it on eBay. 
All right. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. Get your Unorthodox merch at tabletstudios.com. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Daron Rusquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. Our news and mailbox themes, plus our Across the USA theme song, are by Steve Barton. Tell us about your family's superstition. Email us at unorthodox@tabletmag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Email us at unorthodox@tabletmag.com or leave us a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Tell us your family's superstition. Grab that salt and those amulets. And until next week, shalom, friends. I swear I'm going to up my banter game when the show ends. Now I hear ding every time I'm on stage. (laughs) (laughs) It's ruined my performance. Our work here is done. Every time I say Leopold, I go ding, ding. Like, no. <laughs> you know what? We'll get there. It's it's okay to have nothing going on in your life. Thank you. This play. you Great. Eight, as you say, eight knocks a week. Actually, when that's done, I'll super have nothing in my life. <laughs> but I'll create something. <laughs>